Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello again and welcome to episode 99 of Movie Oubliette, the equator-straddling podcast for forgotten fantastical films, with me, Conrad, getting ready to decamp into my garden studio in Cambridge, UK. Wow, well, funnily enough, uh, and me, Dan, about to embark on a camping trip (laughs) down here in (laughs) Melbourne, Australia. In this podcast, we discuss all things horror, sci-fi and fantasy because we love watching characters plunge to a fiery doom, prototype gizmos that fall into the hands of common Joes and grotesque giants literally folding people in half. Hello, Dan. Mm. Yes, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, studio's coming along. It's coming along. It has power now, so that's helpful. So, yes, lights and uh, sockets and uh, fuse boards and all that jazz is in there. So I'm just waiting for the rest of the inside to be fitted out and painted. And then I can start moving in. Very exciting. Wow. (laughs) It sounds sounds almost like you're you're about to move into a a new house. It does. Yes. My own little little enclave. It's very exciting. Mm. Oh, that is very, very exciting. How about you heading off into the wild? Yes, about to go camping. Uh, we haven't been camping since April last year, 2021. So, wow. uh, yeah, it's a good time for it. It's not too hot. Um, and I feel like our dog is less crazy, but still <laughs> a little bit crazy. <laughs> so it's still going to be challenging. Yeah, I can't imagine sharing a tent with Baxter is particularly peaceful. (laughs) I mean, because the days are so full on and he's just sniffing everything um, and everything's Mm. new and wonderful, um, by the time it's nighttime, he's just out like a light. (laughs) Exhausted. He sleeps like a log all night long. It's (laughs) it's actually amazing. Oh, that's brilliant. Does he normally sleep on your bed? Yes. Yeah, he's he's a bit dog, yes. So you're used to him being there at night anyway. Mm, mm, yes. Yeah. Marvellous. Well, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. So uh, anything in the mailbag today, Conrad? Yes, and we have a new patron as well. So hello to Rhett. Thanks for supporting the show. Hello, Rhett. And Rhett commented on Nightbreed that Craig Sheffer, star of Nightbreed, lives in the same town as I do in York, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Or at least part-time. Very nice guy. I see him and his dog out at restaurants and bars a few times a year. I was keeping a DVD of his movie in my car to get his autograph. Right. And then I <laughs> sold the car and left the DVD in it. Oh, no. So the next time I saw him, I didn't have it. Oh, oh, oh no. That's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be kicking myself, but so cool to see Craig Sheffer just knocking around in your town walking his dog. Yeah, yeah. Yep, uh, actors and celebrities are normal people too. Yes, and probably don't like you to shout meat for the beast from across the street. So, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> we also heard from Stephen Nkden, who said, Thank you for reviewing this movie, guys. I've been aware of it for the longest time, but never got around to seeing it. It's such an oddity. I enjoyed it. Ooh. So, excellent. <laughs> yes, always, always glad to help out with your viewing experiences. Yeah, that's our mission. Grindhead Jim says Nightbreed is criminally underrated. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Uh, when we asked which cut people prefer, Evil Ed said, I prefer the director's cut as I feel the story flows much better. I'm also partial to the Cabal cut as I got to see it on the big screen at the 2012 Mad Monster Party convention in North Carolina. 
realcliveBarker.com did a very limited Blu-ray release of the Cabal Cut, but unfortunately it sold out before I could get my hands on it. Right, right, right. Must be quite a collector's item. It seems like a lot of people do prefer the director directors or the cabal cut but i think it's purely to do with um the order that you watch the cuts as well Mm. i can understand that people especially people who have a strong affinity for clive Mm. are pleased to see him get something that's closer to his original vision out there especially because it was such a trouble production sure sure on the sound of Decker's knife being unsheathed in Nightbreed. Oh, yes. Which oh, the cat. Sounded like, <laughs> yeah, sounded like a cat screeching. A wicked person says they're actually touching it to a block of dry ice to get that stereotypical oh. horror movie screeching sound. Wow. So there you go. I did not know that. It sounds like a cat. It does, yeah. Now, Wicked Person <laughs> sent me a clip of uh, of doing exactly that, of scratching something across dry ice, and it makes a really distinctive screeching noise. So okay. Wow. Uh, something that you might want to keep in mind for sound design in future if you want to go out and buy a block of dry ice from yeah. somewhere. In case I don't have a cat around, dry ice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Much less upkeep. And finally, we heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Ah, Hey, Serge. Hello, Serge. And he said, imagine if the Giver befriended the Zoonoids as their prophesied messiah. Then there was a Cabin in the Woods style showdown between the monsters and the cops. That's Nightbreed in a nutshell, an ambitious found family horror, the likes of which I don't think I've ever seen before. (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. I haven't seen The Giver yet. I, I need no. to watch that. I know it's such an iconic thing in American culture, and I have no idea what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. So thanks, everyone, for your messages. We love hearing from you. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, I guess we need to pick something to talk about for the 99th time. <laughs> mm, I know it's it's uh, we're on the precipice of uh, greatness. <laughs> we are. <laughs> Just a second. Ugh. Okay, I seem to be outside, and I think the movie's up in the air. Oh. I guess I've got to use this jetpack to get it. <laughs> Hang on. Whoa! Ugh. How do you control this thing? Whoa! Look out! Oh, I think I've got it. I'm coming back. Whoa! Okay. Bloody amateurs. All right. I am back. Uh, A little bit uh, tussled. (laughs) But I'm back with the movie. Well, marvellous. What do you have for us? So today we are going to be discussing the 1991 sci-fi action adventure movie, The Rocketeer. Mm. Uh, This was chosen by one of our patrons, Seth Wilson. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So I hope you enjoy this, Seth. Mm. So The Rocketeer is directed by Joe Johnston, based on a graphic novel by Dave Stevens, and screenplay by Danny Bilson, Paul DeMio, and William Deere. This movie stars Billy Campbell, Jennifer Connolly, Timothy Dalton, Paul Savino, and Terry O'Quinn, and numerous others. Yeah, it's a bit of an ensemble cast. So what happens in it? So The Rocketeer is set in the 1930s and focuses on Clifford barely escaping a near-fatal crash with a getaway car fleeing the FBI. He stumbles upon a secretly engineered jetpack. In order to save his friend from an aeroplane mishap, he uses the jetpack with questionable success but immeasurable public approval. However... His antics garner the attention of one evil Hollywood actor, Neville Sinclair, and his hired goons, as well as the FBI. Amongst the chaos, Cliff's girlfriend, Jenny, is kidnapped, and he must decide whether to give up his beloved jetpack or save the girl. Or, more likely, both. Stay tuned (laughs) to find out if Timothy Dalton is secretly a Nazi or if his henchman's face is actually real. Find out after the break. Can't wait.
Okay, we are back to talk about The Rocketeer. Conrad, had you seen this movie? I did. I went to see this movie in the cinema. Me too. In 1991. So I would have been a teenager. It didn't make a huge impression on me at the time. Didn't feel very favourably towards it. Right. And so I'd forgotten it ever since. Mm, okay. uh, so this was a rediscovery for sure. Yeah. So I went to see it at the cinema as well. I would have been possibly eight years old. So it's still <laughs> oh, wow. fairly young. Uh, and I really loved it as a kid. I, I had everything you could ever want as a sort of a young boy. It had like adventure, it had romance and bad guys and Nazis and it's interesting <laughs> the the story um, of of this movie because it is it's like a period piece so set in the 30s but it's of a technology that still doesn't exist like we still don't have jetpacks mm. partly because I'm sure we would have no legs no. if we actually <laughs> tried to fly a jetpack like this one in this movie because it's just exposed flames yep. shooting out from the back onto your legs. So I am, yeah, surprised he doesn't have charred sticks for <laughs> for appendages. Yes, it, the practicalities of it are immediately quite suspicious, aren't they? Mm. Uh, there is actually a test footage, like Nazi footage, that you see halfway through the movie where the prototype goes horribly wrong and people burst spontaneously into flames. Yes. So uh, they do acknowledge that this is uh, quite ridiculous. Mm. Uh, so this movie is based on a graphic novel by Dave Stevens, who uh, sadly isn't with us anymore. No. So he was very influenced by the whole pin-up illustrations from the 1930s and especially Betty Page. Mm. So the character of Jenny is directly modelled off Betty Page. But... Uh, <laughs> A lot more toned down uh, because this is a Disney film. <laughs> yes, it was picked up by Disney. I think they went through various different cycles with it, with different studios and directors involved, including William Deere, who directed Harry and the Hendersons or Bigfoot and the Hendersons, it's known here. Mm. And I think it was supposed to be a touchstone movie originally under the Disney right. umbrella, which okay. means that they can be a little bit more hard-edged and 15-rated. Sure. But in the end, they went for Disney-fied. But for all that, I was still surprised by it. And I was wondering how, as an eight-year-old, you coped with people being machine-gunned to death, bursting into flames, being threatened with torture with a hot plate in a cafe. Mm. It doesn't pull its punches completely, does it? Yeah, yeah. It definitely goes with, uh, down the, like, film noir, like, detective gangster route. Like, mm. it, it does seem quite sort of throwback to movies of yesteryear, of the golden age of, of uh, Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, I guess it probably was quite confronting as a child watching it, but th there isn't really any, you don't see anything. No. Like, no one's face is melting off or like there's no blood. And they do the thing uh, that is kind of more acceptable when killing villains where they just, you know, burst into flames. Mm. So you don't actually see anything because it's just flames engulfing the screen. So it's the type of movie that you would expect from Disney, like still having the action but not showing it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is quite reminiscent of another movie though, isn't it? I found it very similar to Indian Jones, The Last Crusade. Right. Like it has <laughs> Nazis and a blimp. Uh, and <laughs> I don't know. It just seemed very similar. Yeah. And it's another character where I thought Dave Stevens might have been a comic book artist working in the 1930s and 40s and that this was a, a superhero character authentically dating back to that time. Mm. But it's not. It's like Indiana Jones. It's a love letter. It's a pastiche mm. that had just sort of taken off. I think in the 80s, Dave Stevens' graphic novel came out. So mm. it was immediately picked up, I guess, in the way of enthusiasm around Indiana Jones and everything else that had taken off related to 1930s serials and superheroes. So, I mean, Star Wars and Flash Gordon and mm. everything around about that time. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's a love letter to a different era of Hollywood as well, because, of course, it is set in L.A. And uh, the Jenny character, rather than being a nudie pinup, which she was in the original, 
Mm. She is a a struggling actress who finds herself playing extra roles in the background all of the time, sort of struggling to get a line with the leading actor. Mm, Yeah, I mean, her, her character almost seemed quite... 80s to me like she's very girl next door she's very innocent she's a sort of the phoebe cates type character right um so like still very attractive but quite wholesome in that respect yeah i mean it's and also i think we have to acknowledge this is prime jennifer connelly i mean this is a few years after she burst onto the scene in labyrinth Mm. 86 with david bowie but here i think (laughs) i read a comment online that said that basically every teenage boy uh well straight teenage boy in the world just fell in love with jennifer connelly in this movie i have to say i think she is just stunningly gorgeous in Mm. this film yeah yeah she really is uh and i didn't when i was looking at her filmography i didn't didn't realize she's in so many genre films right phenomena yeah, uh, 1985 uh dark city in 1998 um and then uh, stuff like requiem for a dream she was in uh, the uh ill-fated hulk movie from 2003 mm. also in the re- hollywood remake of the japanese horror film dark water yes the day the earth stood still remake in 2008 and uh, most recently she was an alita battle angel in 2019 oh. so she does do a lot of genre films yeah and she lends a, a credibility to them i think because she's a very fine actress mm. i mean she was in a beautiful mind as well so she does yes. a lot of very serious stuff too yeah contrasting with that you have billy campbell yes whose first film this was yeah i don't know him from anything Mm. Like I looked up his other films, and he was in Bram Stoker's Dracula as I'm. I'm not sure what character. Like I guess one of the support characters, and then in other sort of really small roles in Ghost Town, that Ricky Gervais movie, and Enough. So not a lot. No, I think he's made more of a career for himself on TV and things like The Killing. And Cardinal, I think, is a very popular series where he has the main role. Sure. So he's a working actor, Mm -hmm. for sure. Sure. But this was his first movie. Quite a surprise to see somebody who is not a name actor being cast in the lead role in a film of this size Mm. that's due to be released in the summer. Mm. It was originally offered to Johnny Depp. Yes, I I read that, yes. But uh, Johnny turned it down after Bill Campbell's agent was invited into the room to discuss with him whether he should take the role or not by Johnny Depp's agent because they were in the same agency. Right. And he listed all the reasons why he should and then he listed a much, much longer list of reasons why he shouldn't. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So he kind of dissuaded him from doing it. Mm, um, interesting. I think it was the right choice because as Bill Campbell realised in between doing his first audition and coming in for a screen test later on, he does really look like the character as drawn by Dave Stevens and really loved the material when he read it because he's a big fan of this era of movie making. Mm. So he was thrilled to get it. And in terms of embodying this enthusiastic but slightly clumsy and terribly irresponsible character who learns to be responsible over the course of the movie. I think he does a brilliant job of it. Yeah, I think he played the role really well. Um, It was kind of that character that did really exist in the 90s, like the sort of Brendan Fraser type character. Yes. Um, (laughs) Not like a a ripped Arnie or Stallone sort of hero, uh, just kind of an everyman, Mm. but still charming. Yeah. So, yeah, he did play it really well. Yes, he did. Fabulous hair, too. Oh, yes. Which apparently was the key to him getting the job. Was When he was first auditioned, I think he was working in a Renaissance fair. Oh, so right. he had a beard and really long hair. <laughs> but then he read the graphic novel, fell in love with it, and went and got a 1930s haircut and went in for the screen test. And Joe Johnston, the director, did a double take when he walked in because he couldn't believe oh, the wow. transformation and the likeness. Mm, yeah. Right. <laughs> Speaking of actors in this movie, uh, Timothy Dalton. 
Oh, yes. Your favorite Bond, I believe. Yes. I regrettably don't really know him for much. I've seen him in Hot Fuzz as a Simon Skinner, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I love Where him he's in. hilarious. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> I also know him from Penny Dreadful, the TV show, as uh, Sir Malcolm Murray. Uh, he's also really great in that. What, what was your take on Dalton in this movie? Did he suit the role? I think it's a really great piece of casting. It's right after Licence to Kill and I think Timothy Dalton at that point had hung up his Walter PPK and said, I'm not doing another one Mm -hmm. because Bond was languishing in legal problems. Sure. So for him to take up this role where he's playing a very, very British, very suave, pencil-mustachioed actor who is also, whilst being charming, is also dangerous and Mm. teetering on the edge of violence at any moment it's not that different from his portrayal of bond sure but it also pitches him into villainous territory and i think he's quite frightening in the role yeah because he's so sort of controlled with his behavior as well. Mm. He's not maniacal and unpredictable. He's very conniving. Um, And also because of his status in Hollywood as the A-list actor, he has a sort of a poise to him as well. It's verging on moustache twirling almost. Right. But he's clearly having fun in the role and also sending himself up as a terribly serious actor. Mm. It's nice to see him having a bit of fun and being a villain and getting his comeuppance at the end. Yes. Uh, I did laugh, though, because in these types of movies, uh, when their you know, true intentions are revealed, like he is a secret Nazi spy, yeah. uh, he suddenly has a German accent yes. that is awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst German accent I've ever heard. And, and so sort of half-hearted as well. Like, uh, you didn't need to put that in there. No, it only shows up in like one or two lines. And yeah. it's not very convincing when it's there. He could have easily carried on it didn't make any sense really Mm. but i mean it's sort of the the cliche in in hollywood movies when their identities revealed like they have to go full evil with their their accent (laughs) yeah Yeah. and start killing people at random yeah uh another actor in this movie that i think i may have missed um alan arkin Mm. um, who plays cliff's is it his dad or just a friend? I couldn't figure it out. It's some sort of mentor, but they live together and they have a mailbox that has both of their surnames on. So right. okay. it's depression era America. I mm. guess people had to get together to sort of uh, make do and make as best as they could. And I think he plays a wonderful character. I've always liked Alan Arkin. Mm. I think he's very funny. I remember in, in things like um, Edward Scissorhands around the same time. Right. Yes. I just love his way of pointing out how disastrously bad a situation is yeah. while speaking completely <laughs> matter-of-factly and offhand. Yes, so yes. He's never alarmed, is he, Alan Arkin? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that in the movie, please. Uh, definitely mm. <laughs> some of my favourite lines in the movie. Yeah, he he is down to earth Mm. and very realist about uh, situations. (laughs) He is, yeah. Very deadpan. I do love his satirical style of delivering dialogue. It's wonderful. Mm. And I I like the milieu. I mean, there is a real sense of community around the airfield and the cafe, the bulldog cafe. All of these people, you get a real sense of warmth. The film is shot with the sort of 90s faded pastels mm-hmm. gives you a sense of the era the film is very brown for the working class folks who are just trying to scrape by with their flying clown show mm-hmm. and their dreams of becoming racing pilots and getting to the nationals mm. there's a nice sense of community there that you get at the beginning that i really enjoyed and then it moves into hollywood and the glamour and the glitz and you have the cameos from people playing clark gable and wc fields and you have howard hughes in there as well as the aviator who invented the rocket pack Hmm. played by Terry O'Quinn who people who love horror will know from the Stepfather movies but I primarily know him as John Locke from Lost with much less hair than he has here. Yes. Yes. So yeah, it's a sense of evoking two different aspects of the era Hmm. but with a sort of 
90s gloss over the top of them. Yeah. I did really like the almost um, like period piece approach to it, having Howard Hughes as a character, because he was a, a real person. Mm. I didn't know that until I looked him up. Okay. Um, yeah, he was a real person. He was an American business magnate, investor, record-setting pilot, engineer, film director, and philanthropist. Mm. So real-life Tony Stark, it seems. like I think Tony Stark was modeled off his persona yes. for the Marvel movies. Yes, and of course with the character the Iron Man there's lots of uh, crossovers yes. here. Yes, uh, sure. also like uh, sort of earlier designs for the Iron Man suit, quite reminiscent of uh, the helmet and, and get up of, of the Rocketeer in this movie. Yeah, mm. th- I mean I think what's great about this movie as well is the visual look mm. of the film, especially of the Rocketeer and the director, Joe Johnston, really did put his foot down in terms of keeping it very, very true to the graphic novel and, and its look. Yeah, which wasn't easy because uh, you can draw that helmet, but designing one that you can actually wear comfortably that doesn't look ridiculous mm. is not <laughs> no easy task. So it went through quite a few iterations. At one point, I think it was like an astronaut's helmet, which ugh, would have looked awful. Ah. Whereas he does look incredible as this Art Deco style that mm. they also managed to achieve throughout the production design by uh, Jim Bissell, who did things like E.T. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a legend in his field. The movie looks great. I mean, just things like Neville Sinclair's apartment, which is decked out in this Frank Lloyd Wright-style Art Deco. Right, yeah. uh, Brutalist architecture. The famous Ennis House tiles that you also see in Deckard's apartment in Blade Runner. Quite distinctive. Which is interesting because William Sanderson, who plays J.F. Sebastian in Blade Runner, is also so in this movie, ah. as one of the patrons of the Bulldog Cafe, one of the members of the right, air show, I think. Right, right, right. It does look great, the movie. Mm. I'm glad that they didn't go with Disney's intention of updating it. I think having it oh, sort of truer yeah. to the 30s really keeps it nice and almost like timeless as a film. Like, I, I don't, I mean, it is 90s, but I don't think it's like ridiculously 90s to me Mm. the whole art deco um aesthetic over it i really really do like and i i tried to look up other films in that sort of style and they they tend to be quite steampunky and i think i would have described this movie as steampunk but it isn't i mean it is technology that doesn't exist yet but it's not run by steam or coal or anything (laughs) like that it's still futuristic but other movies i was thinking of dark city city of lost children that we covered uh, wild wild west obviously Mm. and then sort of anime movies like the castle in the sky and the anime movie metropolis steam boy as well i really love that art deco um sort of gleam over it yes but apparently caused problems for the film because the one of the reasons attributed to its failure at the box office because it was a box office disappointment was the advertising campaign right so it has this beautiful art deco poster that apparently just did not sell kids on what this movie was or why they should care about it. Oh. It looked like something very adult or very serious. Oh, right. It wasn't the sort of typical 80s poster for an action-adventure movie. I think it did get a different poster in other territories eventually because okay. they realised they'd made a mistake. Yeah. I mean, when I think of this movie, I do think of three types of movies. So first of all, the sort of steampunk style but also i mentioned the sort of neo-noir look of it very of the time it's coming after batman batman returns which were very gothic and neo-noir in their look also the shadow and dick tracy and other movies like mulholland falls and la confidential and even movies like um who framed roger rabbit so it was very popular at the time. I don't know why. Mm. It hasn't sort of regained popularity, that sort of look. But I, I do like it. It's it's dark and gritty. It is, yeah. Although maybe not so much in this movie. This movie is quite vibrant. 
This movie is quite vibrant and has the Hollywood glitz and glamour mixed in mm. for good measure. Interestingly, The Batman, which has just been released, oh, yes. takes a return to that sort of era. I mean, it's the wettest and darkest and most neo-noir movie I've seen in quite some oh, right. time. Okay. And of course, we had Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley not too long mm, ago. So mm. could be coming back. Yes. The film was a failure. Yes. So what are the uh, details? So it debuted at number four in the uh, charts in the US on June 21st, 1991, behind Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, City Slickers and Dying Young. Mm -hmm. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, of course, was a massive hit that lingered long in the box office. Right. It managed to hold on to fourth place the following week as Naked Gun Two and a Half opened at number one, but it slipped to sixth place the week after when Terminator 2 opened. Oh, that's, yeah, that's tough competition. It is, yes. And I think it was another reason that was attributed to its failure was that putting it in between two massive juggernauts like T2 and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, was probably not a good idea that maybe they should have gone for another school holiday, oh, yes, Easter yes. or fall, you know. But they tried to go up against the other summer blockbusters mm. and uh, got lost in the mix, basically. But it's had a cult following following since mm, yeah i mean i think some of the downfalls of this movie uh it's not terribly original mm. in its bare bones themes and and plot jenny doesn't get a lot to do she is very much a damsel in distress i mean she does smash a few <laughs> blunt objects over goons and and uh seems to be her signature move actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it really is um so she's not completely useless and she's not just screaming all the time no but yeah it is very kind of cliche Hollywood, like almost old Hollywood and its characters of like the hero and the villain and the love interest. Yeah. Disappointingly, Jenny is introduced to us via her legs. Mm. And later on in the movie, there's an awful shot where the camera just plunges into her cleavage. I know. As a sort of point of view shot it's, for W.C. Fields. It's supposed to be point of view, but it feels gross. Yeah. And it feels... Odd. Yeah, it doesn't feel like we're, we're uh, looking at the, the point of view of that character. I think the opening shot of her with her legs is a homage mm. to the original character, Betty. Yeah. Um, so I think that is why that's there. But if you don't know that, it does seem a little bit icky. Yeah. Because her character, for the most part, is very wholesome, very girl next door. Yeah, she is. My main problem with the movie, watching it, or what I think the problems are, I think it sags in the middle. Yeah. I think the opening is very strong. The air show opening is great. It's got this uh, real footage of flying with Bill Campbell in the cockpit, mm. um, which is pretty amazing to look at. I mean, he's not flying, actually, somebody else's. It's a three cockpit plane oh, right. with a camera mounted in the middle Ooh. and he was terrified the whole time apparently. yeah i really was terrified of flying what a role <laughs> to get i know i know but he agreed to do it because it, they did say to him it will look better than if we do green screen and he's absolutely right it's mm. sort of tom cruise style real footage that makes the opening really great mm. the air show rescue is really exciting as well but then it sort of sags and crucial there is this uh, scene at the South Seas Club where Neville Sinclair is meeting Jenny and it's bisected by a lengthy sequence in the Bulldog Diner where the hoodlums are threatening to torture Alan Arkin's character PV mm. and making the owner scream and cry. Tonally, it feels awful. It drops the film dead in terms of momentum. And then you go back to the South Seas Club and all the Rocketeer does in that is just sort of fly around like a dozy wasp in your kitchen. Yeah, he doesn't do a lot, does he? No. He sets everything on fire. <laughs> he sets everything on fire and just sort of hits objects. 
And then you get to the Zeppelin finale, which is pretty exciting and well executed. Mm. So I think structurally the film, it's only like an hour and 40 minutes. It's not a long movie, but Mm. in the middle it just sort of sags and he doesn't seem very active or very impressive. I mean, the whole bumbling hero who achieves things by accident, Mm. very much a 90s thing again, like you were saying, the difference in terms of body types too, in terms of male hero figures in that era. Mm. But I don't know, he just doesn't seem like a very inspiring hero. Yeah, I would also add on to that, um, for a movie that's called The Rocketeer, Mm. he doesn't use the rocket all that much. I mean, there's a few key scenes but yeah, there isn't really a lot of usage of the rocket. You, uh, we want some more rocket stuff. <laughs> we do, and crucially, I mean, there is a scene right at the end where Howard Hughes says to him, what was it like to strap that thing on your back and fly like a bat out of hell? Mm. And he says, it's the closest thing I've ever gotten to heaven. And then he looks at Jenny and says, well, almost. Right. And it's a lovely line. I would have loved to have felt that in the movie. At yeah. what point did we experience the unbridled thrill of being the rocketeer and flying. Yeah. The air show rescue, he keeps falling off and it's just terrifying, which is great. It's great to see him failing and learning Mm. and not being perfect straight away. Mm, mm. What do they call those female characters that can do anything instantly? I don't know. Mary Sue? Is that a... I think it's Mary Sue, isn't it? Right, right. Okay, yeah. So he isn't the male equivalent of that, whatever that is. I don't know it on the tip of my tongue. But So that's great. But at no point do you get the sense afterwards that he's elated that he's having some sort of joyride with it and you you're brought along with him as the audience and experience this amazing i'm thinking of things like how to train your dragon sure where the flying sequences are just breathtaking Mm. you get none of that but could you attribute that to just limitations i mean Mm. the scenes with the rocketeer flying around you do see that it is a green screen for the most part. And yeah. and it's done very well. Do you think so? I think it's done pretty well. Uh, watching it now, you can see, yes, it was pretty obvious. Mm. But those could have prevented them from having a, a standout flying scene. Like they were a little bit short-lived. Just effects-wise, at, you know, 1991, this is, yeah, very early days for any CGI. Yeah, there's no CGI in the movie as far as I'm aware. It's all optical mm. compositing. And I think the Rocketeer mostly is an 18-inch animated model sure. flying around, except for process shots where it's Billy Campbell or a stunt person. Mostly Bill Campbell, I think. I think he did most of his own stunts. Right, right. Which is referenced later in the movie where he has a fight with Neville Sinclair. And he says something like, where's your stunt man now, Neville Sinclair? Claire and Timothy Dalton punches him off his feet and he says, I do all my own stunts, which is kind of an in-gag because he does. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I heard that. I I mean, I haven't seen any of his Bond movies, but uh, apparently, yeah, he did a lot of his own stunts in those movies. Yeah, which was a marked shift from Roger Moore, who, you know, even if he had to break into a sprint, had to have a body double. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, they did the best that they could, but it's like right at the edge of when digital compositing was starting to come in Mm. so they're still using the old optical method where you can clearly see the outlines you can clearly see the color timing is not right and Mm. you can clearly see that the scale of the objects is not right and this is industrial light and magic this was the cutting edge of what they could do on this budget in 1991 and Mm. it's not good i'm sorry it's i didn't think it was as bad i thought even the flames of the rocket were really well done I couldn't fault them. Yeah, they're pretty well done. They, they look they're great. animated, hand animated. They look really great. It's kind of got a bluey, yellowy tinge to it. Mm. I don't know. I think I'm more forgiving because of when it came out. I mm. think it's not as bad as you describe it, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, I thought it was bad at the time when I went to see the movie, but... Yes, well, I was eight, so I thought everything looked real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for Random Trivia! So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia have you found stashed away in a duffel bag in an old derelict plane today? Well, uh, the plane that you see Cliff fly at the start of the movie was the GB Racer, the Model Z from 1931. 
This was once the fastest land plane in the world. Uh, unfortunately, though, it often had nicknames, uh, so the Widowmaker and the Flying Coffin, uh, as it was <laughs> quite hard to control and prone to crashing. So probably very uh, encouraging for poor Billy <laughs> yes. to be in, in one. <laughs> yeah, or I guess it was a slightly different model, the one that he was in, because it had somebody else flying up front. But sure. yeah, yes. still, I wouldn't like to be doing loop-de-loops in that, knowing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really did look quite like you were just trapped in this tube. There was a barely any uh, sort of window uh, for, for your head, any space for your head. Like you were very strapped in there. Oh yeah, very claustrophobic. It reminded me of some of the scenes in Dunkirk where uh, characters like Tom, is it Tom Hardy's character or is it somebody else? I think it's somebody else okay. crashes in the sea and their right. plane is going down and they're trying to hammer their way out of the cockpit and mm. Uh, mm. yeah I'm a little bit claustrophobic myself so I wouldn't fancy that at all yeah well I'm glad uh, aviation has uh, has improved since the 30s <laughs> yes for sure and that's our trivia it is One thing that does give you a soaring sense of flying, though. Yes. James Horner's score. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, the score is, it's like an, another level. Mm. You forget how great scores used to sound. I'm not saying all modern scores are bad, but all modern scores are very either abrasive percussion, mm-hmm. which is just blaring like Hans Zimmer type percussion, <laughs> or it's just horn stabs. Uh, which is also blaring, or it's just ominous tones. Mm-hmm. And that uh, tends to be, I mean, this is a broad generalization, but there aren't any themes anymore. And the no. musical <laughs> themes in this movie were just astoundingly good. Beautiful. Yeah. The thing I particularly like about it is the theme for the Rocketeer is not a fanfare for a hero. Sure. It's more of a down-to-earth folk hero, earnest, long-line horn theme. It's not right. It's not yes. a big, bright, short motif. It's a, a love letter to the era and, you know, his good heart and his courage mm, and to the mm. thrill of soaring over the clouds as well. So A lot of French horn. A lot of French horn, a lot of nobility yeah. and courage and mm. patriotism about it, but it's also kind of earnest. It's not a massively bombastic theme at all. Yeah, sure. But he can use it in all kinds of different ways. I mean, I love particularly the first time that Clifford Secord straps the rocket on. Mm. He plays the Rocketeer theme, but he also plays Neville Sinclair's rising, sinewy, dangerous theme intertwined. So you get a sense of where this is headed, just in terms of the two competing interests and the dangerous path he's on. So yeah, he's got themes for each character for, well, the the three main characters, and he intertwines them in lots of interesting ways. And it's detailed, it's beautifully orchestrated. There are very, very long Mm. action sequences. It's all very lush and beautiful and shimmering. Mm. It's James Horner at his finest, and he had a particular affinity for flying himself, right. uh, being a pilot in his spare time, and unfortunately, that's how we lost him. Wow. He uh, crashed his own plane. Wow. That's sadly how he passed at the all-too-young age of 61. Wow. Doing what he loved, though? So Yeah. People sort of take some solace from that, that he was living the dream, so to speak. But sad that he's not around to do those Avatar sequels. <laughs> yes. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe she. Maybe he's glad. Um, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of uh, sequels, there were two sequels planned for this movie. So this was supposed to be a trilogy, mm. especially after the success of Indiana Jones. But... Uh, definitely flopped uh, at the box office and so everything was scrapped because Billy Campbell was contracted to do two more movies and I think Jennifer Connelly also was contracted to do one at least one more at least one more yeah so they wanted to make a whole series out of it but it failed at the box office so it was dropped immediately which is a shame Mm. there have been some belated attempts recently there's a children's show that's on Disney Plus 
an animated show which has a young girl inheriting the rocket pack from her grandfather or something like that. Mm, mm. And her dad is voiced by Billy Campbell, which is a nice uh, callback. Mm, yeah. But apparently there's something underway right now. Yes, there is. There's been a script written, apparently, for a Rocketeer sequel reboot that was written back in 2016 by Max Winkler and Matt Spicer. I don't know who they are. Uh, and the new Rocketeer is going to be a black woman. So a, a complete change of pace and characters. I would watch this. Mm, well, I think it may have changed again since then, because I think the latest news is that it's going to be David Yellowo. Oh, okay. Um, so a black man rather mm, than okay. a black woman. So I wouldn't like to see a woman. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the theory is that it might be David Yellowo playing a former Tuskegee Airman. Okay. So I guess that would be later. That would be after the Second World War. Right, right, right. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen the, the trilogy. I would have, it would have been interesting to see where they would go because I do feel like they did establish a really interesting and vibrant world mm. of the Rocketeer setting it in a real time with some real characters um, with a piece of technology that didn't exist yet. I was intrigued by that. Yeah, and there was plenty of material to work from. Dave Stevens had another book at least and was full of ideas and was always involved in the production. So I think they could have done more. Mm. But no, nope. it wasn't to be. <sighs> we can end with a big sigh. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Okay, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite high-flying jetpack parts of the film in a number of, oh no, he's secretly a Nazi categories. <laughs> Best quote. PV, the sort of mentor, mechanic, older gentleman, um, friend of Clifford has the best lines. Uh, mm. There's one where Clifford is talking about, like, I, I you know, he, I want to borrow the jetpack for a while. This is after he's acquired it. I just want to borrow it for a while. And PV replies, Clifford, when you borrow something and you don't tell nobody, they call that stealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very true. And he says it's so deadpan as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. He's so grounded. He's such a grounded character. It's great. Yeah. Uh, I had one of his lines as well as my favourite quote. And it's a lovely moment just before Cliff Secord takes off to rescue his friend Malcolm, I think, in the air show. Mm. And he puts on the helmet for the very first time and says, how do I look? And Peavy replies, like a hood ornament. <laughs> 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 and he does so. mm. <laughs> best hair or costume I think hands down the winner in terms of hair and costume in this movie is Jennifer Connolly as Jenny mm -hmm. in her cream satin gown her gorgeous black hair pearl earrings her long opera gloves and her slingback stilettos as she takes to the dance floor with Neville Sinclair. Uh, I think throughout that scene, Jenny and Jennifer just looks stunning. Mm, she really does. Yeah. Ruby red lips mm. as well. Yes. Now, that particular dress has come up for auction a few times for between four and $6,000. But as far as I can see, it oh. hasn't ever sold. So oh. it's still out there, I think, if anybody wants it. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, costume for me uh this is more prosthetic uh so we haven't mentioned at all uh the character of lothar or good old boy mm. played by tiny ron so he is just enormously tall character in this movie he's one of the henchmen goons of neville sinclair and his face is I mean, I know it's supposed to be menacing. You've, it's it's a bit of a cliche. The henchman always has some sort of face defect or interesting facial appearance, but it's, the prosthetics are so extreme that he can't even really talk. Like when he talks, his no. jaw just kind of goes up and down. It does. There's no sort of lip movement at all. I mean, he was menacing though. Like 
my wife Hannah did draw comparisons between his face and you know those masks that bank robbers use the the prison oh. masks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like in Point Break. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Most nineties moment. So I, I feel like the nineties was possibly the last decade for that very sort of old Hollywood um, sort of swashbuckling saves the day hero. Mm. Like I'm thinking of Brendan Fraser from The Mummy, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That sort of character, even though it's not specifically 90s, I feel like the 90s was the last decade that really sort of had that type of character. Yeah. And then in the 2000s, you've got your Mission Impossible, Taken, uh, Born Identity, John Wick type heroes where they were highly skilled with limitless stamina, still able to be hurt though. Yeah. But you, you kind of lost the love interest in, uh, after the 90s. That wasn't so much a big... Um, convention for movies mm, that's very true it's interesting examining the way that heroes have changed over the decades i found that fascinating mm, mm. Uh, for me you've sort of touched on it before it's the 1930s i think is the most 90s thing about this movie. yeah yeah kicked off by who framed roger rabbit in 1989 all of a sudden throughout the 90s you had captain america in 1990 starring matt salinger Oh, that's, um, a, that's okay. a tough movie to watch. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it. Of course, Joe Johnston would go on to direct the new version of Captain America mm. in 2011. Yeah. So there's a connection there. The Shadow in 1994 with Alec Baldwin, mm. Dick Tracy with Warren Beatty in 1990, The Phantom 1996 with ah, Billy Zane. Yes. So there are lots of comic book heroes set in the 1930s, but interestingly, all of these movies flopped. Right, yeah. Favourite scene! You kind of criticised the scene, but I did really like the restaurant scene. Uh, the South Sea, was it the South Seas restaurant? Um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I I really loved the the sort of opulence and of the production design. Like it was quite almost monochromatic. A lot of um, either white, black, or silvery tones. And then the sort of hijinks that happens with um, Cliff trying to get a message to Jenny with the soup and the message, and and then um, Neville not know had never actually met Clifford yet, so didn't realise that it was him. I don't know. I, I thought it was it was a kind of a um, fun scene. I mean, obviously Clifford didn't do anything that helpful no. by <laughs> just flying around and sitting and causing chaos, but. Uh, uh, it was a, a good sort of set piece uh, of a scene for me. Yeah, I, I think the the bumbling hero bit is quite fun to watch. Slopping soup over everyone. Yeah. It's a favourite scene for you, Conrad. Oddly enough, my favourite scene, despite all of the heroics, which I, I don't think really paid off very well, it was uh, Neville Sinclair trying to seduce Jenny with lines from his own movies. Oh, yes. <laughs> but her being such a great fan of him, she recognises all of them and mm. calls him on it, which yeah. I think is wonderful. But she somehow manages to maintain this air of being a confused woman who yeah. still finds him attractive and is, you know, willing to try on a nighty that's basically see-through just to lure him into the bathroom so she can do her signature move of cold cocking him with a vase. Mm -hmm. I just love that scene, particularly when she says, it's sort of a Bond one-liner, I finally played a scene with Neville Sinclair and punctuates it by zipping her dress back up. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> I thought, you go, Jenny. <laughs> Most cliché sci-fi moment. So conversely, uh, Jenny's yeah not always a very active character, and the the biggest I think this is more of an action movie cliche, is the old let the girl go situation. So it's mm -hmm. not just the fact that she's a damsel in distress, but that she's constantly being kidnapped to be used as you know, 
you know, yeah. leverage mm -hmm. against the main character. And whenever that happens in a movie, strangely, everybody forgets what her name is, even though all of them have had long relationships with her and know what her name is. But all of a sudden, everyone just refers to her as the girl. Get right. the girl. They've got my girl. Hand over the rocket or the girl gets it. Mm. It's like, she has a name. We all know what it is. Why aren't you using it? Mm. And it's such a trope and it really pisses me off. Wow. I've never noticed that before, actually. Wow. Okay. Well, cliche for me. Uh, yeah, I think this is uh, less of a sci-fi, but more of an action cliche. You've mentioned it. It's, it's goons and henchmen and villains that get hit over the head with blunt objects because it happens three times in this yes. movie. Jenny does the deed <laughs> twice. Once in the restaurant with a statue and again with Neville Sinclair with a vase. Uh, and then there's also another scene where uh, the, the matron at the diner or the cafe hits one of the henchmen with a frying pan or something. Of course. Um, yeah. it, it almost happens too many times in this movie. It's normally a once or twice uh, uh, occurrence, but yeah, three times. Best <laughs> special effect. Yeah, I think I've mentioned it already. I did like the rocket effects, uh, specifically the flames. That I couldn't fault them. They looked very real. They looked very, they looked very practical almost to me. Yeah, they did. And obviously, you, you watch the film for a few uh, sequences of the flying, and before you realise, actually, they can't be because his legs would just be gone. Oh, of at course, this point. of course, exactly. <laughs> How about for you? Special effect. It's one specific one, and it's during the air rescue sequence where Cliff is rescuing Malcolm from the plane during the air show. And it's because he keeps falling off mm. the plane all of the, over and over again. And there's one particular shot that I think is very well choreographed where he falls off the tail of the plane. And that's a real shot. That's a live stunt of somebody falling off a plane. Jeez. And he falls right. into a cloud. And then... The ILM special effect happens where the the cloud lights up, where uh -huh. the rocket fires up again, and then the sort of special effect model flies out of it and mm -hmm. he comes back again. And it's just a beautifully choreographed combination of a live stunt and a visual effect. Mm. And I thought it was great. Yeah, it looked good. Favorite sound effect. Sound effect for me, it's the rocket again. Uh, and specifically <laughs> when it turns off. So when it turns on, it's, it's, it's expected, it's that sound, but when it turns off, there's a very slowly sort of whirling, slowing down sound, like a and it, it's, it kind yes. of goes over time, it's, it's just a nice detail, I liked it. It is, and it is exactly the same thing I've written oh, down. Wow. What, I, <laughs> what I particularly liked about it is that it's it's something that's very powerful and spinning very fast, but it's also got that sort of sense that it's metallic and small. Mm, it's sure. not huge and bassy. It's quite a tinny sort of yeah. sound, but you get a sense that something is working very hard and needs to cool down. Mm. Most, Most funniest, funniest moment. moment. So there is a recurring gag in this movie where Peavy gets blown backwards by the Rocketeer as he right. takes off. And I think you're supposed to find it a funny piece of physical comedy, but I found it funny because it is clearly a stunt double in a terrible, terrible grey wig. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I didn't know. He kept being <laughs> he kept being blown off his feet and it's like, well, there's a 20-year-old guy in a shit wig. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I just found it hysterically funny. But I'm sure it wasn't meant to be funny for that reason. I did yeah, not even notice that. I have to watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> and for you? Well, funny for me, uh, in the scene on the uh, on the film set, so the swashbuckling uh, Inigo Montoya character film set, um, <laughs> after Neville has overheard Cliff and Jenny talking about the, the rocket pack, um, and he tries to chase after him, Neville tries to chase after him and he just knocks over every single crew member on that set. And it, I <laughs> I don't know whether it was intentional, but it was very funny because there's, there's a guy holding a suit of armor and he like pushes aside people with swords. He even like knocks over a guy holding a tambourine. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's actually a bit hilarious. I, I, I thought it was um, very funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's our move, please.
Hi, I'm Lars Henriks, director of Leon Must Die, Bear Kittens and F60 Kamikaze, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. All right, everyone, it's that crucial part of the podcast. It's time for final verdicts. Should 1991's The Rocketeer be rocketed out of the oubliette triumphantly and be applauded by all, or should it be exploded on top of a giant Nazi blimp and plummet down back into the oubliette lost forever? <laughs> Conrad, what, what what's your final take on this movie? Should people watch this movie? It's a tricky one because it's nice to see such an open-hearted and warm and positive heroic film. It's a great sense of community it has around it. It looks beautiful. The production design is gorgeous. James Horner's score is thrilling and exhilarating. But I found the movie itself wasn't. I felt it sagged in the middle. I didn't think any of the action sequences in The Rocketeer, well, first of all, there weren't enough of them. And when they did happen, he was bumbling and not particularly effective throughout. I never really got a sense of the thrill of flying or being the Rocketeer or that he was a very active character that was achieving anything. Mm. So at the end of it, when he got his plane from Howard Hughes and the credits started rolling without any kind of final line or button on the scene, just over this image of a plane, I just thought, oh, is that it? Mm. So I found it quite disappointing and, and uneven in the end. So I was thinking... For our 99th episode, this far in, yes. I was thinking that we need a new voting system oh. whereby one person can say, don't know, really. It's not a bad movie. Mm, I don't hate sure, it. Sure. But I can't see myself, A, watching it again, or B, recommending to other people that they watch it necessarily, mm. that they go out of their way to track it down. So I think there should be a, a, a new third way <laughs> because... Not everything is binary, despite what the yes. social media algorithms tell you. So my vote is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So okay. sort of leaves it to you, if you see right, what I mean. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I have two uh, bugbears with this movie. It's it's not terribly original if, if you really strip it down mm. to its, its basic plot. It's not doing anything new by, by any means. Uh, Jenny's character... I, I would have liked to see her as the the sultry vixen pinup that um, the original Betty character was uh, in, in the graphic novel. Right. That would have been a really interesting, different approach. Uh, like she wouldn't have been completely useless. Well, she wasn't completely useless, but she wasn't, she wouldn't have been the, the classic damsel character, I don't think, um, if she was more of a headstrong uh, sex positive pinup. Mm. So th those are my issues with the film. But I think maybe maybe I'm suffering from nostalgia. But I did get warm fuzzies watching this movie again. Like it did really bring me back <laughs> to my childhood uh, watching it uh, at the movies. Uh, the characters are all very generic, but I love them. There, there was so much heart mm. in this movie, so much warmth. Uh, when when characters died, it, it did you know it was affecting. Um, and I thought it did pretty well in terms of visual effects and, and especially the overall look and aesthetics and production design was, was great. Like it really does uh, make this movie stand out amongst other movies of the time. And it is like in terms of heroes, it is a bit of a last hurrah in terms of that type of hero um, for the 90s. Um, so yeah, I, I would recommend this movie. Um, I mean, it's not doing anything new and it is very Disney on, on a lot of respects. Um, mm. uh, it, it is very much a family movie with, with some extra sort of, uh, levels of, of violence, but for <laughs> the most part it is, is very watchable and I would recommend this movie. I, I would, I would set this one free, Conrad. Okay. Well, in that case, it <laughs> wins the day. Yes. So we better strap on this rocket pack, uh, hit the button, and oh! I don't care if I look like a hood ornament. Goodbye. Woo. Away it goes. There it goes. Bye bye, Rocketeer. <laughs>
I think on balance, that's probably right. I think it's, it is it is a warm-hearted movie, and I think if you have nostalgia for it and love it, uh, it's great to revisit. And if you haven't seen it, it's a great example of fine filmmaking from mm. the 90s. Yeah, yeah. But just not outstanding. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not outstanding. I, I think because it had a decent budget, like it does rise above a little bit. Um, and also mm. the score's great well so if, yeah. if anything it's a it's a fantastic uh score by james horner yes i do have the score yes. <laughs> and also so I listen to the music a lot and also this was a patron's choice movie so it thank was. you to seth for choosing this movie uh, i really had fun revisiting this yes and seth was saying quote oh boy now i feel a whole lot of responsibility when oh. we <laughs> revealed the movie <laughs> i enjoyed this movie as a teen but i think it got lost in amongst the batman movies dick tracy the shadow and the phantom oh it seemed like at the time there was an attempt to bring That's back what we talked about yes it, yeah exactly yeah now he says that it seemed like at the time there was an attempt to bring back the old radio and movie serials which the rocketeer comic was heavily influenced by and I also just learned that Joe Johnston also directed Captain America, the first Avenger, which I would argue has some similar DNA, which mm. indeed it does. It really yeah, does. It's in the 30s. Yep, with yeah, with Nazis again. <laughs> with Nazis again. Yeah. So so I hope Seth enjoyed uh, your revisiting of this movie and your nostalgia for mm, it. Mm, mm. So if you want to look forward to our future episodes, uh, our upcoming 100th episode live stream you can follow us on our social media platforms facebook twitter instagram and reddit as movie oubliette yes and you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com we always love receiving your messages and we also do love receiving ratings and reviews if you haven't already on whatever podcast platform you are using uh spotify included give us uh five stars and your best uh, words of a, a praise for us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, they keep us going. And if, like Seth, you would like to nominate films for us to cover, then you can become a patron, where for as little as a dollar you can nominate movies and get access to extended snippets from the show. And for $5, you get access to our monthly minisodes, where we talk about something completely different that you've suggested. In our latest minisode, we've been talking about... V, the miniseries mm. from the early 80s. Yes, that was a new one for me. Uh, and we do have <laughs> merchandise available on Redbubble if you would like to have our logo on all of your stuff. So head on over yes. there and buy, buy away. Clocks and towels. And <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> all sorts of strange things. Okay, Conrad. Well, 100th episode. What are we doing? Well... It's quite a milestone for us. So rather perilously, we are going to live stream ourselves recording our 100th episode mm -hmm. on, depending on which uh, time zone you're in, Saturday the 9th of April, you can watch along with us. Uh, so that's 2pm Pacific time, 5pm Eastern time. In the UK, it'll be 10pm. But if you're in Australia, like poor Dan, then it's going to be... 7 a.m. on yeah. Sunday the following day. Always the way, isn't it? Always the way. I mean, nice, nice nil yeah. for me. Yes. And as for which film we are covering, oh my. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be slightly nostalgic for me because we will be covering the 2006 low-budget English action horror film written and directed by James Eves. With a score by one Conrad Chambers <laughs> called The Witch's Hammer. <laughs> yes. So apologies in advance. <laughs> I am very much looking forward to this. I'm really not. But, <laughs> but I think it will make for a very fun and tongue-in-cheek 100th episode. So I'm looking forward to seeing your reaction and to uh, seeing the reaction of all of you guys out there listening. So. Mm, mm. Yes, so you cannot miss that episode. The only feature <laughs> film that Conrad has scored. Yes. <laughs> That was released, anyway. Yes. 
I think at the end, the question will be, as always, should it have been? Mm. So tune mm. in for that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and we will be joined by a guest. Hopefully, yes, we will have a we will have a guest for that episode to to celebrate along with us. So. Looking forward to that. Yes, listeners. So mark that into your calendar, Saturday, the 9th of April. Mm, yes, indeed. <laughs> Can't wait. Looking forward to the milestone anyway. And it's great to have all of you along with us. Mm, mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, catch us for that milestone coming up. And uh, we will hopefully see you then. Yes. Bye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie Juliet. Oh, my prince, would that you drink of my lips as deeply.